Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, welcome back, everybody. I've been gone for three weeks, I think, so it's good to be back um, on a Wednesday night teaching to an actual group of people. Sorry it's a little cold in here for some of you. It's perfect for me, but the heat, we didn't turn the heat on, so just keep wearing your jacket. It'll warm up by the time we leave. So that'll be good. So, Well, let's pray, and then we'll dive into looking at two of the fruit of the Spirit tonight. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we have together. Lord, we're so thankful for your grace, your mercy. Lord, as we look at these two aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, we want to just learn. We want to grow. We want to be more like you. So help our time tonight, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at goodness and faithfulness tonight. So let's go in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, where we've been hanging out the past couple months, and we're slowly but surely getting through this list. So Galatians 2.22, I'm sorry, 5.22, Galatians 5.22. And I don't expect you to remember all these that we've looked at every week. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. So we're going to look at goodness and faithfulness tonight. They're, they're similar, but they're a little bit different. Um, so let's just ask the first question. What is goodness? What is goodness? Well... The word in the original language that Paul uses there is the word agathos. And the word agathos can mean good or it can mean something else. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. And this is a very familiar parable of the laborers in the vineyard. So Matthew chapter 20. It kind of gives us insight into what this word goodness means. So in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you go into the vineyards too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, okay, that's about five o'clock at night. Okay, so he's going out to hire workers around five o'clock at night. He found others standing by and said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one's hired us. He said, You too go into the vineyard. And when evening came, so let's probably say maybe around 7, 8 o'clock, those last guys that got hired around 5, how long did they work? A couple hours. Who got hired first? The guys that were there at 6 o'clock. So they probably put in a good 12, 13 hours a day. Okay, verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. 
Now, why did he start with those that were paid last as opposed to those that came first? Because those that came first would have taken their money and left and not seen what was about to happen. So verse 9, when those hired about the 11th hour, okay, about 5 o'clock, came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Now, what are the people that were hired first thinking? This master's generous. He, those that only worked an hour got paid a denarius. I've worked all day. I'll probably get more. Well, what do they agree upon? A denarius. So the master paid everybody the same amount. A day's wage. And the people that worked all day got mad. Now, what does the master say? Verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Do you begrudge my generosity? The word generosity used there is the same word that Paul uses for goodness. Are you upset at my goodness? So goodness is often equated with generosity. You've heard of somebody saying they did it out of the goodness of their heart. So here's what goodness is basically. Goodness in essence means to have integrity with a gracious heart. Good people do what they do simply because it's the right thing to do. They're transparent, they're generous, they have pure motives. Now remember, these are the fruit of the Spirit. So we need to kind of go back and get our bearings straight. We can't produce these qualities in and of ourselves by sheer willpower. These aren't products of our own flesh. These come through the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so as we've done every time with the fruit of the Spirit, before we understand what it means for us to display these, we always want to go back and look at how God shows these characteristics. Okay, so the fruit of the Spirit is love. God is love. God is patient. God is kind. Now, how is God good or generous or gracious? So let's talk about the goodness of God. The goodness of God. Do you remember back in Exodus... After the golden calf, when God was going to destroy the nation of Israel, and Moses says, hold up, God, don't, don't destroy them. They're your people. And God says, okay, but you can lead them, Moses, to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. We'll just send an angel ahead. And Moses says, I don't, I, I'm not going to go forward to the promised land unless you're with us, God. And then what does Moses ask the Lord? Please show me your glory. And God says, you can't handle my glory, so I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. But in Exodus 33, 18 and 19, that looks really huge on the screen, doesn't it? Does it look like that back there on, on the screen back there? 
No? All right, well, just, it just looks, you'll see it on your sheet. It just looks really big. All right, Exodus 33, 18 and 19. Moses said to the Lord, please show me your glory. And what does God say to him? I will make all my, what does your Bible say? Goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So it's very interesting that God's goodness is tied to his name, is tied to his glory. So Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, I'm going to show you my goodness. And my goodness is wrapped up in my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And you remember what God does. He puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he gets to see his backside glory. So God's goodness is wrapped up in his graciousness and his mercy. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I'll show grace. So there's a lot of scriptures that talk about the goodness, the graciousness, the mercy, the generosity of God. Psalm 31, 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you've stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. How abundant is your goodness, God? It's overflowing. Psalm 119.68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Psalm 136.1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Isaiah 63.7, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that he has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he's granted them according to his compassion, according to his abundance of his steadfast love. It's interesting when the Old Testament talks about the goodness of God, it's almost always tied to that Hebrew word has said, the loving kindness, the graciousness, the compassion. So how is God good? God is good through his generosity, through his steadfast love. God is good, just like God is love. God is perfect. God is pure. God is good. Now, when we, when we use the word good, we sometimes think, well, he's a, he's a good piano player. He's a good basketball player. He's a good parent. She's a good teacher. And we think, okay, that's kind of good. Kind of, in, our, in our word, it means average. Okay, they're kind of good. Like, you got bad, you got good, you got excellent. You can't put God in a quality where he's inferior, when the Bible says God is good, that means he's the ultimate of good. He's ultimately holy. He's ultimately merciful. And the Lord makes all things work out for good. Now think about that. Not only is God good and God does good, but God can make all things work out for good. Remember Joseph's brothers, what did they do to him? They threw him into a cistern and left him for dead, and he got bought into slavery and all that kind of stuff, and they lied about him back to his dad, Jacob, and he gets raised to be the prime minister of Egypt, and then there's a famine in the land, and the brothers come back, and they get freaked out because they think that Joseph's going to take revenge upon them. And what does Joseph say at the end of the book of, of, of Genesis, Genesis 50, 20? Joseph's talking to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it what? For good. Meant what? The evil that the brothers perpetrated against him 
God meant it for good. What was that good? To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph helped them with the famine. And so what they had planned for evil, God made good. And then there's that famous passage, Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So when we talk about goodness, we're talking about reflecting the character of God. Being gracious, being a person of integrity, being um, generous, you're doing things out of the goodness of your heart just because it's the right thing to do and it glorifies God. So let's look at an Old Testament example of someone who displayed goodness. So we're going to talk about Daniel. Okay? Daniel and the lion's den. We're not going to get that far, but turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. Now, remember back in Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rakshak and Benny, if you grew up watching the VeggieTales with your kids. What happened to them? They didn't bow down to the huge golden altar, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Okay, this is, this is a little bit different. Okay, let me kind of set the context here. Daniel, when he was a teenager was carted off into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon, which is about 900 miles away from Jerusalem. So from about a teenager up until about this time in his life, he's about 80 years old. He's been a Hebrew, an Israelite, but he's been in a foreign court, and he's been a, a top-notch person in the government. And he's lived through different kings. And so here he is, a senior citizen. He's 80 years old. He's outlived two kings. And now he's being promoted under King Darius to be made a prime minister or or a governor, a satrap. And so let's look and see what happens here to Daniel. Chapter 6, verse 1. Darius is the king. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. An excellent spirit was in him. In other words, if you kind of jump back to the Old Testament before you get to the fruit of the Spirit, you could say Daniel demonstrated goodness. There was an excellent spirit in him. And he was promoted. And so you can think about all the things that politicians do to get ahead. Okay, he's 80 years old. He's been a politician his entire life, he's been in government his entire life, but Daniel never once compromised. He remained a man of integrity. Think about that, 80 years old. You think by the time you're 80 and you've been in politics, in government, in high, high office, some, somebody could have bribed you along the way. You could have compromised, but Daniel 
has utmost integrity. His entire life is that of a servant. And think about it. Sometimes when you get to the end of your life, you, you could, it could be easier to coast. You could just say, you know what, I've paid my dues and I've, I've done the good thing my whole life and here I am in my 80s. I kind of deserve to break the rules or to kind of get my way. But not for Daniel. Daniel's a man of integrity. And what does the Bible say there? There was an excellent spirit in him. Okay, let's find out what happens. Verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could not find ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. So they tried to find some dirt on Daniel and they couldn't. Why? He was faithful. He was a man of integrity. There was no fault. He was a man who had an excellent spirit. Verse 5, then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So here's the plan. We can't dig up any dirt on Daniel. So let's compromise or let's find something that's going to make Daniel compromise when it comes to his God, the Lord. Okay, so Daniel was characterized by goodness. In in envious anger, in devious jealousy, these other men try to find a way to get Daniel through his integrity, his relationship to God. They knew he was a man of strong principles and spiritual strength, so they devised a plan to trip him up. Okay, let's let's find out what that plan is. Let's let's look at verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction." So what, is, what, do they, what do they get the king to do? Sign an executive order. Doesn't that sound familiar? Just, just sign an executive order saying for 30 days to lower the curve. No, I'm, th- I'm sorry. 30 days, you've got to not pray to any god except for to the king. Okay, now what could Daniel have been tempted to do? Hey, I'm going to lay low for 30 days, okay? This is, not, this is not, a, it's not a huge deal. It's not like he had to go out and bow down to a statue. All you had to do was go 30 days without praying, and if you broke that, you were thrown into the lion's den. So Daniel wasn't called to deny his faith, per se. He wasn't called to bow down and worship an idol. He just couldn't pray to his God for 30 days. So what, Dan, what could have Daniel done? Daniel could have laid low for 30 days and then went back to praying. I'll, I'll just, I won't pray for 30 days. He could have compromised and passed the time and gone along with this new law. After all, he's in his 80s. What difference would it make? It's only 30 days. 
let the 30 days go and no big deal. Now, if you're a person of goodness, if you're a person of integrity, if you're a person with whom there's an excellent spirit in you, a person who they can't find fault with, a godly person, you may experience persecution. What does 2 Timothy 3.12 say? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So what do we expect Daniel to do? Wait 30 days and lay low? What does he do? Let's go to verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where, which had windows and his upper chamber opened toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to God before his God as he had done previously. These men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and pleas before his God. They came near and you know the rest of the story. He gets thrown into the lion's den. So what does Daniel do? I'm not just going to pray to my God. I'm going to go to an open window and do it three times a day. Now that shows some boldness. That shows some integrity. Daniel was a man with whom there was an excellent spirit, regardless of what the consequences were, because his relationship with his God was more important. He basically said, you know what? I don't really care what the king says. My relationship to the Lord is more important. And he was one of the highest officials in the land. I mean, that was, that was one of the things. He wasn't a peon. He was like one of the top three officials in the land. And the king entrusted him. And all the kings that he served under entrusted him. And so Daniel is a model of goodness, integrity. He did the right thing even though it cost him. Now we know the rest of the story. What happens? He gets thrown into the lion's den and he comes out. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. The Lord saves him and gets him out of there. Okay? Let's turn to Psalm 15 for a moment. Psalm 15 talks about goodness. And, and by the way, when I say goodness, I'm not talking about being a do-gooder just to kind of be a do-gooder. We'll talk about that in a moment. It's not doing good. It's a fruit of the Spirit called goodness. So it's a character trait. Now, we'll talk about good works here in a moment, but it's ultimately who you are, a person of integrity, a person of generosity, a person who demonstrates goodness. Okay, so Psalm 15 of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who will dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. And speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, and does not evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. That characterized Daniel. A man who spoke truth, a man who was blameless, a man who walked in goodness, doing good, being a person of integrity. So Daniel is an Old Testament example of someone who displayed goodness. 
I want you just to think about that, that passage. It said, in him was an excellent spirit. That's kind of a cool way to put it. That person had an, has an excellent spirit. That person demonstrates goodness. The fruit of the spirit, goodness. Okay, let's talk about a New Testament example. A New Testament example would be Barnabas. Barnabas. Okay, interesting what is described about Barnabas in the book of Luke. So let's turn to, um, you guys, we're going to be going all over the Bible today. So it'll keep you warm to turn those pages, okay? Acts chapter 11. Verse 19. Now, let's just backtrack, and, and I know we're, we're kind of jumping into the middle of these passages, and, I'm, and there's not a lot of context or background, but who was Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee? He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor of Christians. What happened to him on the road to Damascus? God got a hold of him. Jesus appeared to him. That was his salvation experience, and he was blinded. And then he had to go back and start preaching the gospel. And obviously, people were a little freaked out by Paul now. The guy that used to drag us off and kill us is now coming and preaching the gospel to us. So there was a little bit of legitimate fear about him. And so this is kind of, Paul's been saved, but he hasn't really fully been incorporated into the life of the church yet. Okay, so let's find out about this man Barnabas. Okay, so Acts eleven nineteen through 26. Everybody there? Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, remember Stephen was stoned, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Okay, Barnabas goes to Antioch. Antioch's the first church, besides Jerusalem's the first church. It's the first church planted, Antioch. Verse 23, Barnabas, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast prayer. For he was a, what does your Bible say? Good man. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Barnabas, in verse 24, was a good man. It's the same word that Paul uses for goodness in the fruit of the Spirit. He displayed goodness. Okay? What evidence does Acts give of Barnabas' goodness? Okay? What's the first thing he does when he gets to that church? You guys look. What does it say there? Verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And what did he do? He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He exhorted, he encouraged the church to remain faithful. He encouraged. That's how he was demonstrated his goodness was by being an encourager. That's what Barnabas means. Acts 4.36. His real name's Joseph, who's also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Barnabas' real name is Joseph. 
But what do we know him by? Barnabas, son of encouragement. His nickname demonstrated his goodness. So part of being, part of having the fruit of the Spirit here in Barnabas is that you demonstrate an encouraging spirit. You're an encourager. Okay, what, is, what does it also say about Barnabas? What does verse 24 say? He was a good man full of the what? Full of the Holy Spirit. He was guided by the Spirit. He demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit. He walked according to the Spirit. And of faith. He was a man of faith. Man of strong conviction in Jesus Christ. He, did, he, he was a man of strong convictions. And then what else did he do? He sought out Paul. Included him in the life of the church. He was a man who wasn't afraid to take risk, but was a bridge builder. Okay. So let's look, let's just stop, and let's think about Daniel, and let's think about Barnabas. We're trying to build a composite here of what it means to display goodness. Goodness means that you are generous, you are a person of integrity, you're a person that does the right thing, even though there's cost, you're an encourager, you walk by the Holy Spirit, you are a person of faith, you're a bridge builder, you do good. So, how do we demonstrate goodness? Just be good, right? There's a fundamental thing we need to understand about goodness. And Jesus tells it kind of in a little bit of a parable. Not as much a parable, but more kind of an object lesson. In Luke chapter 6, 43 through 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from the bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's the lesson here? You can only do good if your character has been changed fundamentally by its nature. Can a bad tree suddenly become good? No, unless it's changed. So when we talk about being good, we must always remember that the goodness comes from a changed heart out of the overflow of the heart. And this is not like, I do good in order to earn God's favor. That's not what we're talking about. Because even the good things we do in God's sight, what does Isaiah tell us? Isaiah 64, 6, we've all become like one who's unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Our righteous deeds, our good deeds are like a polluted garment. So, it's all, it all comes back to the Holy Spirit. It all comes back to grace. How can we demonstrate goodness? It's because we've gone from being a bad tree to a good tree. Did we produce that? No, God produced that in us. When God saved us by grace, he changed our nature. He caused us to be born again. He gave us a new heart. And now because we have a new heart, a good heart, a redeemed heart, 
a born-again heart, we can display good works. We can be a good person. I hate to use that term, but we can display goodness through good works. Not as a way to earn our salvation, but as a result of our salvation. What's the most famous passage of Scripture about salvation by grace alone through faith alone? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? You quote this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, right? Salvation by grace alone through faith alone. It's a free gift. Okay, but what, is, what comes right after that? For, verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice the order. What happens if you what happens if you put verse 10 before verse 8 and 9? You could think that you do good works in order to be saved. Do we do good works in order to be saved? No. Do we do good works as a result of being saved? Why? Because we've been saved by grace. We're God's workmanship. We have a new heart. We're now good we're good tree not a bad tree because god's changed us okay let let me show you one other passage of scripture here that talks about how the goodness and salvation and grace of god to us first gives us the power to do good okay this is in titus titus 3 4 through 8 but when the what goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Now let's just stop right there. Goodness and loving kindness. Remember just, just a few moments ago we looked at all those characteristics of God, the Old Testament. What did it say? I, I said anytime the Old Testament talked about the goodness of God, it always tied it to his what? Loving kindness. Here Paul takes those two Old Testament concepts and puts them right together. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, verses 3 through 7 is the gospel. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. You've been reborn, regenerated. Okay, then then here comes verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God, may be careful to devote themselves to what? Good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So, here's my point. The Holy Spirit produces goodness in you as a character trait, which leads to acts of goodness or good works. Make sense? So goodness is something that you are, that flows into something you do. You're a person of integrity. You're a person of generosity. You're a person with whom there's an excellent spirit. You're you're a person who demonstrates goodness through good works. Not in order to be saved, but as a result of your salvation. So, the Bible speaks a lot about good works. Again, not to earn your salvation. Works always come as a result of your salvation. Matthew 5, 16, what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works 
and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So part of being good or demonstrating goodness is letting your light shine by doing good works. Like a city on a hill. Okay, Paul says in Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. So how do you hold fast to what is good? Well, you, you think about the goodness of God, you think about the goodness of Christ, you fill your mind with good things, the way Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Romans 15, 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of what? Goodness filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Now, let's talk about that for a moment. Paul says, listen, I'm thankful that you're filled with all goodness. That's a fruit of the Spirit. And what does that look like? Part of being filled with goodness is you're able to instruct one another. You're growing in your faith. You're able to encourage one another. Like Barnabas, you're able to instruct, encourage, help one another in the faith. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. How can you do good works? God gives you the grace, the sufficient grace to be able to do that. And then Galatians 6, 9 through 10. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Why do you think Paul would say, don't grow weary in doing good? What does it mean to grow weary? Sometimes doing good works, demonstrating goodness, can be tiring. It can be exhausting. It can be taxing. You want to give up. But God gives you the grace, the sufficiency to abound in good works. Paul says in Colossians 1.10, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit in good works. 2 Thessalonians, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And why did God save us and why did Jesus die for us? Titus 2, 13 and 14. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What does it mean to be zealous? To be excited, to be eager, to do good works. The fruit of the Spirit is, or one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. So in summary, goodness can only come from a changed heart and the power of the Holy Spirit. Goodness means 
that you are a generous person of integrity who does good works to glorify God and to encourage others to grow in Christ. Let me stop right there. Goodness means that you're a generous person of integrity who does good works to glorify God and encourage others to go in Christ. If you don't remember anything, remember that definition. That's the definition of goodness. If you take Daniel, if you take Barnabas, if you take the attributes of God, if you take that, that Greek word goodness, you're a generous person. Remember the laborers in the vineyard? Do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge, begrudge my goodness? So you're a generous person. You're a person of integrity. Think about Daniel a person in whom there's an excellent spirit, and you do good works, not to, not to bring glory to yourself, but to glorify God. And then think about Barnabas. You're encouraging others. You're teaching others. You're, you're encouraging others to grow in Christ. And it can be tiresome. It can be difficult to continue to do good works towards others. So we must pray for strength to not grow weary in doing good. Here's the bottom line. You and I do good, and you and I demonstrate goodness, not because it's inherent in us, but because of how God has shown us his goodness. And because God has shown us his goodness, we want to show others that goodness. In other words, we imitate God. What does Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 say? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. God is good. God has shown us his goodness. God has changed our hearts to the Holy Spirit. Now, therefore, imitate God's goodness with that goodness to others. A generous heart a person of integrity, an encourager. So that's what goodness means. Pause, take a deep breath. Let's ask questions before we move into faithfulness because we're going to shift gears to another aspect of the fruit. That's goodness. Thank goodness, goodness. Any questions on goodness? You're a person of integrity. You're a person of generosity. You're a person who does good works to glorify God, and you're an encourager. Okay? All right. Next on the list, we won't turn back to Galatians, but the fruit of the Spirit is, after goodness, what's next on the list? Faithfulness, or being faithful. What is faithfulness? Well, I'm going to give you the definition, and we're going to kind of do what we did with goodness. We're going to look at God's faithfulness before we understand what it means for us to be faithful. But just a basic definition, faithfulness means that you're trustworthy. You're dependable. You're a person of your word. You remain faithful to Christ and his word over the long haul. That's kind of the key there, over the long haul. You don't compromise on your faith. You remain strong in your convictions. Now, that could be said of Daniel and Barnabas. Was Daniel faithful? Not only was he good, he was faithful into his 80s. Barnabas has said he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He was a, a man that was faithful. 
Okay, so you cannot and I cannot produce this faithfulness by sheer willpower. Again, it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to produce this faithfulness in us. But as we've looked at every single one of these attributes, let's go back and look at God. We looked at the goodness of God. Let's talk about the faithfulness of God. Now, I could, I, we could spend a month of Sundays going through verses on the faithfulness of God, but I've only put just a few here. Some from the Old Testament, some from the New Testament. Now, let me just stop. We'll have a little bit of interaction. When you think about the faithfulness of God, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the faithfulness of God? Stay awake tonight because faithfulness. What, what comes to your mind when you think of faithfulness of God? Not your faithfulness, but God. He's what? He's always good. Didn't we just talk about the goodness of God? Which one is it, Jerry? Is he good or is he faithful? Both. That's right. God is good and faithful. The faithfulness of God. Let's look at some of these passages of Scripture. Deuteronomy 32, 3-4. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness. And without iniquity, just and upright is he, a God of faithfulness. He's our rock. He's solid. He can be counted upon. So God is faithful. God is dependable. God can be counted on. Does God ever let you down? Can God ever let you down? Will God ever let you down? No. Psalm 25.10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Okay, trivia question for those of you that have grown up in Emmanuel, and you're all adults, so some of you. What's the word for steadfast love in the Hebrew language? Hesed. I can't tell you how many times when you go through and you look at the characteristics of God, that word hesed shows up almost in every verse. God's hesed, God's goodness, God's faithfulness. His goodness is tied to his steadfast love, his faithfulness. Look at the passage of Scripture right here. All the paths of the Lord are hesed and faithfulness. His loving kindness. We'll see it again in Psalm 33, 4-5. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. There you have it again. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 36, 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Okay, think about this for a moment. I'm not going to say it shows up every single time, but you would be amazed how much the words Steadfast love has said and faithfulness show up together in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. God's love and God's faithfulness. Why is God faithful? Because he loves us. What type of love is God? It's a faithful love. That's really what the word has said means. It means a covenant faithful love. So God's love towards us is a covenant love, and yet he's also faithful to us because he is the unchanging God. Okay, Lamentations. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is... I'm not going to sing it, but this is where that song comes from. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You see it right there. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Those are just a few passages in the Old Testament about the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. Now, when we get to the New Testament, almost, not always, but when Paul talks about the faithfulness of the Lord, really what he's talking about is eternal security. God is faithful to keep us saved to the end. So trivia question. Can a true Christian lose his or her salvation? No. Can you fully and finally fall away from the faith? Why? Because God is faithful to make sure it doesn't happen. If it was left to you to keep yourself saved, you and I would never be saved. It's not up to us to keep ourselves saved. Who got us into salvation in the first place? Did we get ourselves in or did God get us in? If God got us in, God's going to keep us in, and God's going to make sure we endure to the end. Okay, so faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God, is faith, God was faithful to call you into a relationship with himself in the first place. He called you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's faithful. Okay, what happens when you're tempted? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is what? Faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will always provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God is faithful when he called you to salvation. God is faithful in the midst of salvation, making sure that you don't fall into temptation. And God is faithful to the end. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will what? Surely do it. What will he do? Make sure you remain to the end when Christ comes. He's faithful to do that. Okay, now... We're going to move into this interesting passage of Scripture in Hebrews. It's a little bit difficult to kind of explain because the book of Hebrews is the hardest. Some people think Revelation is the hardest book in the... Well, I, I, I put Hebrews and Revelation up there as two, diffi- two most difficult books in the New Testament. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it's very interesting because it goes back to Abraham. Hebrews 6, 16 through 18. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. Now what in the world is the writer of Hebrews talking about here? He's arguing from the the, the um, kind of like when you go to court, you swear an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but truth. You swear an oath. When you buy a house, you sign a contract saying that you're going to fulfill your obligation to the bank and be you know true to your mortgage payments, legal doc documents, contracts. Okay, in the human realm, when you go to make sure that you're you're a person of your word, what do you do? You sign your name on the dotted line. Does God need to do that? No. But here it says he did do that. God didn't need to do that, but he did do that with Abraham. 
It says God more convincingly guaranteed it with an oath. And so what he's saying is God's promise to Abraham and thus to us is so secure because of God's unchangeable nature and his absolute truthfulness. So why is God's promise to us so secure? His unchangeable nature and his absolute truthfulness. Does God ever change? I'm going to teach you guys a big word. Immutability. Immutability. It's not on your sheet. God is immutable. That means God does not change. What would happen if God changed? What would happen if God changed in his essence? This is a, we're going to take a little side theological step here real quick. Okay, I wasn't planning on doing that. What would happen if God changed in his essence? In his being? He couldn't what? Or he wouldn't be perfect. Because if God changed in his being, that means that he went from something less than to greater than. Or greater than to less than. Can God go to something less than who he is? Can God go to something greater than who he is? Because if he can go to something greater, that means he was lesser. So God can't change in his actual essence. Can God change in his plans and his actions? I don't think I want to do that today. What would happen if God changed his mind? Can God lie? Numbers 23.19 God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God says he's going to do something. He's going to do it. He's faithful. 1 Samuel 15.29 Also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he's not a man that he should have regret. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of, the God, the word of our God still will stand forever. Okay. So the writer of Hebrews says, God is unchangeable. God is faithful. God has promised us this great blessing. And how do we respond to this unchangeable, solid, final oath sworn by God to us as his people? you go back and look at that passage in Hebrews, it says we fled. We have fled to him for refuge that we might have encouragement to hold fast our hope. Would you be able to survive life if God were not faithful? If God were not a refuge? If God were not a solid rock? If God changed? we would be so despondent, so discouraged. So when life gets rough and temptations come and trials abound and you go through all these different things, you flee to God for refuge. What does it mean to find in God refuge? When, 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 when the Bible talks about God being a refuge, it means he's faithful. Psalm 18.2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Think of all the different ways the psalmist, he's my rock, he's my fortress, he's my deliverer, he's my rock, he's my shield, he's my stronghold. How many different things can I pile up there? He's faithful. He's a faithful God. 
Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then Hebrews 10, 43, or 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Okay. God is faithful. God is dependable. God is true to his word. God cannot lie. God cannot change. God is a solid rock. That's the faithfulness of God. Okay, back to the fruit of the Spirit. We're to demonstrate faithfulness. Now, we can't be like God and be ultimately faithful because we're going to fail, but what is faithfulness? Let's look at an Old Testament example. We're going to look at two examples, one good, one bad of faithfulness. Moses. It's interesting what the writer of Hebrews says about Moses. In Hebrews chapter 3, 1 through 2, the writer says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, he who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Moses was faithful. And God's house there doesn't necessarily mean the tabernacle. It means God's people, God's, God's plan, God, God's, that, that Old Testament period that Moses lived in. Moses was faithful. And then in Numbers, this is where the writer of Hebrews gets it, Numbers 12, 6-8, this is the Lord speaking, Hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak with him in a dream not so with my servant Moses he is faithful in all my house with him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles and he beholds the form of the Lord why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses now you have to go back to, to um, numbers 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 that's when the people begin to rebel against Moses even Miriam and Aaron try to go against Moses. They don't, they don't like his leadership because he merits a Cushite wife. Um, and so God basically says, listen, don't attack Moses because he is faithful. Listen to how the book of Deuteronomy describes Moses. Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Moses was considered the most humble man that ever lived, and here it says he was faithful. How does the writer of Hebrews describe Moses? Well, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11 real quick, and I want you just to see it with your own eyes. It's the, that passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, they call it, where the writer goes through all those people in the Old Testament that were faithful. They lived by faith. What does it mean to be faithful? To be dependable. To be a person of your word to persevere to the end, to not compromise over the long haul, to remain strong to your convictions, to not give in to temptation. 
What does the writer say about Moses? Hebrews 11, 24 through 29. By faith, that's the repeated theme there in all of Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, by faith, by faith. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer, the firstborn, might not touch them. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 says Moses is faithful. God says in Deuteronomy, in Numbers, Moses is faithful. Here in chapter 11, we see that Moses was faithful. Now, Moses was the greatest, most faithful, big-time person in the Old Testament. When you think about, like, who are the top three names you think about in the Old Testament? Abraham, well, besides you know, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, and David. Okay, so, I mean, Moses is like the top of the list. Now, remember who King Uzziah was? Oh, yeah, Sean, I, I did my quiet time this morning on King Uzziah. He's my favorite example. <laughs> King Uzziah. Moses was an example of faithfulness through the long haul. Even I would say Daniel's an example. See, Daniel's interesting. We could go back and say, we could go back and make the same case for Daniel. Daniel was a model of faithfulness to the end and goodness. He demonstrated both. Moses. Now, let's go to, and I'm sure you've been to this book in a while, 2 Chronicles, not Corinthians, but 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And I want to talk to you about King Uzziah. Because Second Chronicles, not first, Second Chronicles 26. I'm going to read this whole chapter, not the whole chapter. I'm going to, I'm going to skip over a little bit of it, but it's it's very interesting. Second Chronicles chapter 26. I'll wait till everybody gets there because it's probably a book of the Bible you don't often go to. Everybody there? Okay, 2 Chronicles 26. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He, beat, he built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoela of Jerusalem. Okay, trivia question. How long did he reign? 52 years. That's a long time. That's one of the longest reigns of Israel. So when did he start his reign as king? 16. Okay, how, when you're, talk about Daniel again. Let's talk about Uzziah. When you're in the highest position of authority for that long, what do you tend to do over time? I'm the king. I've been doing this since I'm 16. I can do whatever I want. Okay, now let's see how he starts out. Look at verse 4. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. 
He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So what do we see in verses 4 and 5? What, how, does, what, how is Uzziah described? He did, he did right. He sought the Lord. He was a man of prayer. And as long as he did that, he prospered. Okay, so he starts out good, right? 16 years old, seeks the face of the Lord, prays, depends upon the Lord, does what's right. Okay, in verses 8 through 15, I'm not going to read that. Basically, it's just God gives Uzziah victory in war, military victory, over the Philistines. Okay? So he's had victory after victory. He sought the face of the Lord. He's had success after success. He starts out great. He, you would say he's faithful. What is, what is verses 4 and 5? Would you say verses 4 and 5 tell us that Uzziah was faithful? The word faithful doesn't show up there, but does, do we kind of see that there? He did what was right. He sought the face of the Lord. All right. All right, look at verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was, what's the word your Bible uses? Unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Okay. What was his problem? He grew proud. And the Hebrew word there for unfaithful means to act with treachery. What does he do? What does he do? Do you remember when we talked about Exodus? There's the altar of incense. And the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and they would put the altars, they would put the, um, the incense on the altar of incense. That was reserved only for the priests. Did Uzziah have permission to go in there and do that? No. Did he think he had permission to go in there and do that? We don't know why he did it. Except for all the text says as he grew proud. He probably thought, hey, I'm the king. God's given me victory. It's kind of gone to my head. I've been doing this thing for a long time. Nobody's going to mind if I walk into the Holy of Holies and do only what the priest is supposed to do and, and, and do the altar of incense. Because after all, I'm the king. I have the authority to do it. No, you don't, Uzziah. You may be king, but you have not been given that authority. Only the priests can do that. And what happens next is the priests go to Uzziah and they call him out on it. So let's see what happens. Verse 17. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. <laughs> Why does he take 80 of them in there with him? <laughs> I don't know if I want to go face the king alone. So 80 priests. And these were all men of what? Valor. Good men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you've done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. What do they tell him? You have no business being in here doing this. You need to get out of here now. Because you've just brought dishonor to the Lord. Now, what do you think Uzziah would have done at that point? 
okay, I repent, I'm going to leave, I, I, I understand. He was proud. Look at the next verse. Verse 19, then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's household, governing the people of the Lord. He got mad. How dare you tell me I'm not supposed to do this? I'm the king. No, Uzziah, you acted with unfaithfulness. And what did God strike him with? Leprosy. He's unclean. Not only can he not be in the temple, tabernacle, he has to go live by himself the rest of the days of his life because he's ceremonially unclean. And I want you to notice the wording in verse 21. What does it say there? He was, what's the word there? Excluded from the house of the Lord. He was excluded from the house of the Lord. Contrast Uzziah to Moses who was faithful in the house of the Lord. So it's not just being faithful when you start out. Was Uzziah faithful when he started out? What happened? Pride went to his head. And the Bible very specifically there in verse 16 says, he was unfaithful to the Lord God. He was unfaithful. Daniel was faithful to the end. Moses was faithful in the house of God. Uzziah started out well. But faithfulness is not just starting out well. Faithfulness is being dependable, being a person of conviction, being a person of an integrity, being faithful to the end over the long haul. Well, let's think about a New Testament example. You can probably think about a person who was faithful to the end, besides Jesus, obviously. Paul. Paul was faithful in his ministry. From the moment that Jesus knocked him off his horse, you could say, at the road to Damascus, until he was beheaded by Nero, Paul was faithful. Let's look at some scriptures where Paul talks about his faithfulness. Uh, so, whoops. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2.17. Paul says, We're not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity. As commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We're not peddlers of God's word. The word peddle means to deceive or manipulate through trickery. Paul didn't water down God's word, but remained faithful servant to preach the full counsel of God's word to the end. He was faithful in preaching the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 2, But we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And then in 2 Timothy, which is the last book that Paul wrote, he's in prison pretty much right before his death. What does Paul say about his life? 
I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but all those who've longed for his appearing. I've kept the faith to the end. So how can we remain faithful? Or how can we demonstrate faithfulness? So let me just list some practical ways that you and I can demonstrate faithfulness. Number one, we can remain faithful in the midst of trials, temptations, and persecutions. When you're facing temptations and trials and persecutions, that's when you're tempted to, to not be faithful. 1 Thessalonians 3, 6-7 But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought to us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers... In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. In all your distresses and afflictions, Paul says, one thing that's given us comfort in the midst of your afflictions is your faith. 2 Thessalonians 1.4 Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you're enduring. They were being steadfast in the middle of afflictions. They were remaining faithful. 1 Peter 5, 8-9 Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist the devil. And then Revelation 2, 10, this says to the church in, um, I think, Smyrna, the second church. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So one of the ways we can be faithful is in the midst of trials and temptations. We can endure through the grace that God gives us. We can demonstrate faithfulness. Okay. Another way we can remain faithful is by not being captive to false doctrine. We can remain faithful to the truth. 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. We can remain faithful by not giving in to false doctrine. Okay. We can remain faithful by serving one another in the truth. Interesting what 3 John, 3 John, when was the last time you read 3 John, verses 4 and 5? I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. He's speaking to a man named Gaius saying, you've been faithful. You're welcoming these these brothers. You're you're encouraging them. And then we can be faithful like Paul in fighting the good fight. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. 
Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What did Paul say at the end of his life? I fought the good fight. I finished the race. And then we can remain faithful by doing good works but relying on the sovereignty of God for the results. 1 Corinthians 3, 6-7. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Okay. Goodness, faithfulness. Goodness, let's just review. Goodness, you're a person of integrity, of generosity. You do good works for the glory of God and you encourage others. Faithfulness, you remain faithful, dependable. You hold fast through trials. You don't give in to false doctrine. You stay strong to your convictions over the long haul. You're a faithful, dependable person of conviction. Now, let's end with a parable that combines goodness and faithfulness together. It's very interesting. So turn your Bibles to Matthew 25. It's the parable of the talents. And these two terms, good and faithful, the two things we've been looking at tonight, show up in this parable. And this is about the second coming. How are you prepared for the coming of Christ? So let me give you the main point of this parable before we read it. Okay, I'll just give you the main point. The main point of the parable is this. In anticipation of Christ's return, question, how are we using the capacities, gifts, and opportunities he has given us to glorify him? Every single one of you, if you're a Christian, has been given capacities, resources, gifts, abilities, opportunities. How are you using those to glorify God before the end of the age. Okay, so let's read this. Start in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more, But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, or the two words you see there, good and faithful servant. Two words we've been looking at tonight. Good and faithful. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who had also received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I know you to be a hard man. Reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you're scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. 
Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he who will have in abundance. But from the one who has not, even when he has, will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, a couple of observations about this passage of Scripture. Uh, First of all, God is sovereign in how he gives gifts. Now, what's a talent? A talent is not necessarily like like an ability. It's a unit of measure from money. And let me help you here. A talent is 6,000 denarii. Does that help you now? It's equal to 20 years of income, basically. 20 years of income. It's a lot. So in this parable, what does the talent represent? It's a unit of money, but what does it really represent? God has given to you talents, resources, abilities, opportunities. And God's sovereign over that. He gave some what? He gave the first guy how many? Five. The second one, two. The third one, one. Now, God is sovereign over how he gives you those opportunities, those talents, those gifts. You don't choose that. God does. The point, the point of the parable is not to compare yourself to others. The point is, with what God has given you, how do you do that? So that's, that's the second point. God expects us to use his gifts for his glory. Some of you will have more gifts and resources and abilities than others. That's not the point. The point is, whatever God has sovereignly given you, you're responsible to use those for his glory. God expects us to use those. And third, God rewards those who diligently use those gifts to serve him. What did the first two people, the person that had five, what did they do? They went and they doubled. They were diligent, they went and they, they got a return on investment. The second person who had two, what happened? They doubled it. The third guy who got one, what did he do? He went and buried it and said, at least, I mean, I'm not going to take a risk. I'm not gonna, at, least I'll give the, at least I'll give him his, what he, at least I'll give him one back. To the two that went and glorified God with the resources they were given, what does the master say to them? Well done, good and faithful servant. Fourth, God punishes those who did not receive his gift of grace. So the overall issue in this parable is this. God has given each of us a measure of gifting, resources, and opportunities in order to serve and glorify Him. Are we being responsible, diligent, and consistent in using those gifts for His glory until Jesus returns? So let's bring this together. We got a parable that talks about goodness and faithfulness. So let's just bring it down to one last sentence here. A person who demonstrates goodness and faithfulness, good and faithful servant, 
is one who's empowered by the Holy Spirit to do good works, to display integrity, to show generosity, and to remain steadfast to the end. That's the summary, bringing those two together, goodness and faithfulness. The Holy Spirit produces within you integrity, generosity, being an encourager, and you're also remaining steadfast, you're faithful, you're dependable, you hold on to the truth, you stand firm to the end. So that's where we end tonight. Do we have any questions in the last few minutes on goodness and faithfulness? What's next on the list, guys? I don't have Galatians out in front of me. I don't know if I have it. My head's full of so many things here. Gentleness. Oh, we only have two left. Gentleness and self-control. Hmm. And then we've got the, the rest of the passage there about crucifying the flesh. So, yeah. Well, let me pray for us. If you guys have any questions, just uh, let me know and we'll go from there. Father, thank you for this time we have tonight. Lord, we're thankful ultimately for your goodness toward us, your steadfast love and goodness, and then your, your steadfast love and faithfulness toward us. And it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit in us that we can demonstrate goodness and we can demonstrate faithfulness. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would produce those in us. And, and we do want to be the kind of people that at the end of our lives, we would hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant, that we've been those that have done good works out of gratitude for your grace and that we've been faithful to the end, not because we did anything, but because you did it all in us through your power and through your grace. Give us the confidence to know that you can do that in us, Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.